Machute Mate recognizes the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and any indigenous elders of other communities who may be listening today. We stand in solidarity in their struggle towards the colonization and land back. Buenas mi gente! Welcome to another episode of Machete y Mate. What is good? My name is Austin G, and I am coming to you from unceded Manahoac land in so-called Virginia. Once again, I am filling in here for our normal MC, Leroy, who's had some scheduling conflicts, as well as dealing with a, a bit of a sickness this week, which has kept him out. Uh, at the top here, just wanted to reiterate that, Leroy, we miss you, brother. Hopefully soon we'll be able to bring. That's right. Yeah, hopefully soon we'll be able to bring the whole team back together for an episode. Uh, but I should add that despite Leroy's recent absence, he's been doing some wonderful work uh, recording our tri-weekly Machete Minute uh, news roundups. So if any of our Machete Matistas out there miss Leroy's wonderful voice, uh, you can listen to listen to him more regularly by becoming an official Compa Oficial and subscribing to our Patreon beautiful so nonetheless all that all that behind us uh we've got a really good episode lined up for us today uh alongside a wonderful guest that i'll be bringing to you all uh very shortly here uh but before i introduce our guest of the day i wanted to pass it over to you probably already heard him here our returning co-host dare i say for a second week in a row believe it or not my brother t is here t tell the i know shocking <laughs> it's 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 fucking shocking that i've managed to like be a little bit more consistent here but like i said before last uh on the last episode like my now that my i have a full-time job again it's no longer i wasn't i'm no longer in the seasonal holiday seasonal minds as they it was as we would say um but uh now that's full-time you know things are getting back into i can get back into the swing of things so i'm just i'm glad to to be here yet again wonderful thank you brother i should ask how are your vibes today, bro? They seem to be pretty good. How, how would you describe your vibes, my friend? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. It's, you know, I'm off work today. You know, I just kind of, uh, you know, taking care of some, uh, you know, you know, doing the normal day off thing. I'm chilling. Beautiful. We love day offs. Ash Wednesday, right? Oh, my goodness. True. That's true. It is Ash Wednesday. <laughs> exactly. We uh, we celebrate Ash Wednesday, right? Something like that. I don't know. Uh, I think like a third of the podcast, maybe. <laughs> yeah, good enough. There you go. It's Latin America, baby. We had to plug that in there. Anyways. Okay. So, once, you know, so seriously, it's good to have you back for a second week in a row. And once again, hopefully, as we begin to get back into our regular routine, you know, we've got an exciting year ahead, which brings me to tonight. Or this evening, however, depending on when you're listening to it, uh, our full episode today, we've got a really good, important inf interview discussion lined up for all of you listening, as we are welcoming somebody here for the first time with us to help us digest some of the most recent news out of Venezuela. That would be Venezuela Analysis's own Jose Luis Granados Seja. Jose Luis, let us know. How are you doing? And, and feel free to tell the people a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, it's really great to be here. Uh, you know, we actually mentioned this uh, before we got started. Uh, Austin and I met in Venezuela, so it's very apropos that, that this is uh, the first time I'm joining you here on the on the program. I'm a staff writer at Venezuela Analysis. Uh, it's a really important website. It's been around for many, many years. It's probably the uh, single best repository of the history of the Bolivarian Revolution in English. You know, we're actually going through a process of updating our website. And one of the things that we've been talking about is like, we really got to make sure we don't lose any content because there's a lot of a lot of reporting that happened in the moment that it's, it's important for, for people later on who want to understand the Bolivarian Revolution to, to, to review that. Uh, I mostly focus on international stories and issues on in that international or regional realm. And I'm also a master's student at the Autonomous University of Mexico City in the defense and promotion of human rights. But it's not that liberal human rights kind of framework that maybe some of you are thinking. Actually, all of my, prof my professors are come from a Marxist framework. In fact, mm -hmm. one of them, you might know, his name is Carlos Facio. He's an ex-Tupamaro from Uruguay, a journalist, writes for La Jornada. He's, yeah, it's like... That's the kind of education I'm receiving, and I'm working on my thesis, which is the defense of political sovereignty is the promotion of human rights. So basically linking this concept that defending political sovereignty is what opened up the space for, for the defense and advancement, in particular, of the positive, positive human rights and vice versa, right? Like as we defend human rights, we also protect political sovereignty. And I think some of that is quite relevant to what we'll be talking about today with Venezuela. 100%. As you're all hearing from that, Jose Luis is legit. He's legit. That's probably the first word that would come. To <laughs> That's probably the first word that would come to my mind. And honestly, like all all BS aside, I cannot stress enough how much of it. Even before we met in Venezuela, right? I cannot stress enough how much of a fan I've been of your work, as well as everybody else at Venezuela Analysis. Like, and how much I would second a, a lot of what you said as far as the importance of Venezuela Analysis. There, there's. I mean, y'all's uh, series on the communes down there are just absolutely like not just the the articles, but the short videos that have been produced. I always recommend that to anybody. Like if you want to see an inside look at people actually doing the damn thing, check those out. It's really fascinating. And, and it can give you a lot of hope in these kind of, you know, doomer obsessed times. Um, so I, I strongly recommend, especially their coverage of, of the communes, the different kinds there are, you know, and they're functioning within the political economy of Venezuela. It's just, it's absolutely fascinating. So like, Honestly, like all the best, dude. And shout out to the rest of the team, right? So that's the the person who does the the interviews is Sira Sira Pascua Marquina. Incredible work. She and her and, and her partner Chris Gilbert are the ones who are, you know, going out and and visiting the communes and doing that work and and speaking with the people. It really is. It's it's incredible because it's, you know, it's political struggle come alive. It's dialectics come alive. Like, it really mm -hmm. helps me understand things. Uh, you know, obviously the rest of the team as well, Ricardo Vaz, the editor, and, and Andreina Chavez, no relation <laughs> to Chavez, but uh, she's the other staff writer there doing great work. Yo, now I have to obligatorily shout out their book, uh, Venezuela, The Present as Struggle. Oh my God, what a good book. But like, I'll digress there because we could talk about this forever, right? But I will say, you know, like, I, I just have to add, you know, like, I've long considered Venezuela analysis the gold standard in coverage of Latin American affairs, right? Particularly in Venezuela in this case. So, so once again, it's very exciting to be able to, to have you on here, Jose Luis. So without further ado, without further ado, because we could talk about that forever, I'd love to start our conversation off here with some of the latest developments from uh, the most recent round of talks between the Venezuelan government uh, and the opposition. Uh, for some of our longtime Machete Matistas, you've probably heard us discuss the state of the opposition in Venezuela and their ongoing talks 
with the government being held in Mexico City. Uh, in recent months, these talks have seen some, some pretty significant developments, uh, which brings me to my first question, pretty simple. Jose Luis, what exactly, how would you describe the current state of peace talks between uh, the government and the opposition? I would say, yes, things stand right now. Things are in limbo. Uh, the truth is that these negotiations, it's hard to put a lot of faith or expectations into them. And why do I say that? I think it's important to actually look at the last round of negotiations that happened between 2015 and 2018. And I want to highlight what the media said at the time. So the ex-Spanish uh, head of government, Jose Luis Rodriguez Zapatero, uh, when they were ready to sign the agreement. So they had gone through years of negotiations. And these are tough, right? Like these are, these are two political forces that are diametrically opposed with a huge gulf between them in terms of what needs to happen in terms of the country. But consensus had been reached. They'd agreed things around elections. They agreed around a position around sanctions against Venezuela, the Truth Commission, some of the social and economic challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And when the, the day came to actually sign the agreement, the opposition walked away. And the thing is, is like this isn't some kind of conspiracy because Zapatero wrote a letter publicly and said, Come back to the table. We've reached the agreement. Why aren't you agreeing? And then they, the opposition spokesperson at the time just kind of gave a lot of platitudes about it being incomplete. But, you know, those are the kinds of things that happen at the negotiating table. When you're publicly in the media answering this call for the mediator to come back and you're saying things like, well, no, it's because we didn't actually agree. That's because something else is going on. And here is where U.S. imperialism comes in. And this is the problem with the negotiations today is that, sure, the people sitting across the table from the Maduro's represent Maduro government representatives are Venezuelans from the Venezuelan opposition, but they're not really negotiating with them. They're negotiating with Washington. And that what happened last time is that Washington, you know, this I don't have any evidence of, but I think we can draw the right conclusions here, said, don't sign that agreement. We have a different plan in, in, in store. And what was that plan? Well, we came to see it. It was Guaido. It was the interim government. It was the maximum pressure campaign. It was the coup attempt. And so this is the tough part about the negotiations now. Why are they at, back at the table? Well, that's because the coup plot failed. Guaido did not secure power. The maximum pressure strategy didn't dislodge Maduro from power. And they are sort of with, left without any options now. They tried the mercenaries. They've tried conspiracies with other unfriendly governments. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Uh, I'm sure listeners of this program have, have heard other shows where we talk about just exactly the links that U.S. imperialism is going to go through. Venezuela is an excellent example of all of those strategies all at the same time. And so now we have these negotiations. And you know, they've been successful in the sense that they reached an agreement. That agreement was signed. It was signed here in Mexico. And basically, they agreed to a $3 billion fund of seized assets. So this isn't free money. This is money that belongs to the Venezuelan people, but is currently sequestered. It is, it is frozen uh, in order to attend to some of the very pressing humanitarian and social needs. And we're talking about like repairing schools, making sure roads are, are safe, uh, attending to some of the deficits that have emerged as a result of the uh, impact of U.S. sanctions and the economic war against Venezuela. $3 billion. It's a lot of money. I mean, it doesn't, it pales, it pales in comparison in terms of how much has been stolen through the U.S. blockade and, and the oil blockade in particular, right? Like there would be a lot more money coming in that the government could distribute if that wasn't the case, but it's a significant amount of money. And, but it hasn't been released. Where is this money? 
And, and so, so much to the point that the representative of the Venezuelan uh, government, who is the National Assembly president, Jorge Rodriguez, he said that the talks could basically collapse unless those resources were made available. And, and he pinned the blame on the, on the opposition. Now, the opposition came back. Uh, Gerardo Blay is the spokesperson in this case. And he said, well, it takes time. They're in different jurisdictions. There's different technical and judicial problems that they have to be dealt with individually. Fine. But it sounds like an excuse to me. I think we know the capacities of the U.S. financial system, which is where some of this money is, is seized. And if they wanted to, they could release it. And they don't. And here's why. I think, again, there's another strategy behind all this, right? What they're hoping for now, because of the other coup plots didn't work, they want to continue to suffocate the Venezuelan government, to continue to keep them in a weakened position because elections are around the corner. And so by not releasing this money, I think eventually it will be, but by making it such a tired process, they're basically trying to take tools away from the government, right? Because let's say the money came out and they started to attend their social needs. The Maduro government would be right to say, hey, you know, if we actually had access to all of the wealth that is generated from the sale of oil, right, that has been denied to us, we'd be able to attend to these humanitarian issues that exist inside the country. It kind of reminds me, and I bring this back a lot, to the strategy of the U.S. and Nicaragua after the Sandinista Revolution, which was that just exhaust the population and make them vote out the revolutionary government, right? It's, it's sort of the same logic. So that's why I think what they're trying to do is resist releasing that money in order to keep the situation dire, to make it easier for the opposition to win when elections do come around. And just one final note, you know, there was this uh, extensive report in January from the Wilson Center. And for people who don't know, the Wilson Center is de facto a government think tank, right? It literally operates out of a government building. And they put a lot of emphasis on these talks. Uh, that also makes me suspicious, right? Like, why is something that is basically an extension of the U.S. government pushing so much emphasis on this? Because it allows them to say that, hey, we're, you know, good faith partners. We want talks to, to prosper. We know that this is the path out of the quote unquote Venezuela crisis. But I have my doubts. You know, as I said, I think there is a there's a bigger strategy at play here. And, you know, we'll see what happens in the in the coming months in terms of where if, if this is negotiation table continues to exist. But we do know that elections are around the corner and both the United Socialist Party of Venezuela and the opposition are getting ready for that uh, encounter soon. Oh, my friend, I have so much to say to the, all of that already. Oh, my goodness. This is, I'm loving this. <clears throat> so the first thing I would say is, oh, my goodness. Like, so a couple episodes ago, uh, Leroy and I did a kind of like a review of the uh, like the Salak summit that happened recently. And like, I remember there was a comment from like Gabrielle Borch who says, I'm like, oh, I would love to host peace talks in Venezuela. And it's like, dude, you stop, right? Like, and something I said on that podcast was exactly what you just said right here, which is everything that I've seen when I, when I hear uh, Jorge Rodriguez coming out saying, oh, I don't know about the peace talks, the opposition doesn't seem serious, things like that. Everything I've seen tells me exactly what you said, which is, the strategy from Washington is, no, we're keeping things as is until elections. We need Maduro as weak as possible going into those elections. That is our strategy right now. And it's just stalling, right? I saw a quote from uh, Stalin Gonzalez in the opposition saying something like, yeah, accessing the $3 billion of fund, I, well, it's kind of hard. What does that even mean? Like, I, I'm paraphrasing, right? What does that even mean, right? It all speaks to a strategy of stalling, 
right? So like, and and that's once again, that's the tactics from the United States this entire time during this Maduro government and to and the end of Chavez, right? Strangle them, right? Do whatever we can to it's it's sanction strategy, right? Right? Do whatever we can to make sure that the population tries to 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 vote them out, basically. Which, uh, oh my goodness, I I don't know, T, if you had any thoughts here before I ask another question, please go ahead, T. I think, you know, I mean, this is, it's, there's a lot of evidence that the current round of negotiations are in bad faith yet again, like last time. There's a lot of evidence. There's no proof yet. We'll know by election time, of course. Um, No doubt what's pressuring or the uh, pressuring Washington is just the changing tides uh, in the wider region, you know? So they need a, basically they need a win, right? They need a big W and get, you know, the, the Venezuelan prize would be tremendous for them. It's been it's been a bee in their bonnet for over two decades now, right? They need Maduro gone and not a part of this kind of upsurge that's been happening the last few years. So no doubt there's pressure there. What's remarkable to me too, again, <laughs> almost a theme now, is how far right-wing elements in a country, you know, su- you know, supposedly so nationalistic and they love their countries, are willing to sabotage the economies of their own countries. It's as tr- true of Venezuela as it is of the United States, as it is of uh, Argentina, anywhere, anywhere. They are willing to just tolerate all kinds of pain and suffering if it can cynically aid their, their just their quest for, for control of the state. Dude, oh my goodness! That uh, now I have to say another thing, and then I I will pivot back to you in a moment here, Jose Luis. Oh my goodness, that is another point that I always try to drive home. Right? It kind of frustrates me when I see this narrative of like the right wing in Latin America or like Bolsonaro or whatever. Oh, you see, he's like a hardcore Brazilian nationalist. No, 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 no. Bolsonaro and the right wing in Latin America, their policy is not Brazil first or Venezuela first. It's Washington first. That's their policy, right? Their policy is, okay, how can we cater to Washington, right? How can we do whatever the United States is telling us to do? And that's not an authentic nationalism. Yeah, go ahead, Jose Luis. Well, I think is also like, let's look at the class dynamics. The reason they're like this is they respond to the interests of the owners of capital in their countries, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the owners of capital in Latin America are a very poor bourgeoisie, right? Like they're not productive. They live, they're a comprador bourgeoisie. They, they live off rents, especially in the case of Venezuela. And so their entire base depends on that relationship with imperialism. And that's the issue. That's why they're not actually nationalists because they would, if they were nationalists, they would actually put their capital to productive use, but they don't, right? Like people have to understand that, that the ruling class in Latin America isn't the same as it is in Western Europe or North America, right? Like at least there, they have some kind of interest in augmenting the productive capacity that doesn't exist in Latin America. And so that's why you have such a poor and politically disorganized opposition because they respond to a class that just doesn't have its shit together. It's all, it's all through patronage networks is what it is. Like it reminds me very much of the, uh, what we in the, the U S the United States South call the gentry, right. Which are basically like the, uh, kind of small business, small bourgeois that are big wigs in like these small cities and towns of like 50,000 and under, but they have no, they're not producing anything. They're not helping anybody. They're, or or not, not helping, but they're not, their whole uh, purpose is just uh, to keep, uh, is labor discipline effectively, right? And they actually make their real money through these like Byzantine patronage networks. It is no different. These, uh, these upper classes in Latin America are, are very, they, and 
surprise, surprise, their politics match the uh, U.S. Southern gentry, kind of like this far right, neo, uh, you know, borderline neo-fascist sort of politics. Yo, exactly. Oh, my goodness. This is a whole topic that could be multiple hours in and of itself. So I'm going to try and steer us a little back on course here, right? Because, oh, my goodness, this is some fun stuff. Um, so I, I'd be curious, Jose Luis, kind of pivoting off of some of the last things you said about the opposition, right? In your in your mind, from your perspective, what would you see as some of the like the most immediate implications if the peace talks were to formally collapse? Right. Like, I, I guess what I wonder is, like, do, do you think the opposition has enough support within Venezuela to further destabilization or have they become too delegitimized since the coup attempt? What would you say to that? I mean, the opposition is incredibly unpopular. They don't have any real figure to, to stand out. Even Juan Guaido who had some popularity in the very early part of his self-declaration has lost it all, right? Like people pointed out constantly, he's less popular than Maduro, right? And Maduro is head of a, of a government that is facing an economic war, right? Like the responsibility is placed on him for the, for the situation of the country. And who, who does that leave? There's still, you know, it's the same old figures from, you know, 15, 20 years ago, Enrique Capriles, Maria Corina Machado, right? Like the Venezuelans don't respond to them. Right. They, they, they're, they see them for what they are. They're representatives of an old political economic elite that wants to recapture political power. And so do they have some of a social base? Sure. Uh, do they sometimes have the ability to kind of expand and maybe start to encroach and, and, and increase their base? Yeah. Is it a sure thing that because of the situation that the country is in as a result of the economic war that they're going to win? Absolutely not. They're not in a good shape. In fact, they know that they have to come together and present a single candidate for the upcoming presidential elections if they have any hope of actually winning. Okay, perfect. You see, spoken like a seasoned podcaster. That's a perfect segue into where I was going to go next. Okay, so, I, so I'm curious to know. When and I don't know, this might be my lack of information, right? Like, if there's been an, an official uh, announced date, when do you expect the next presidential election in Venezuela to be held, and how how do you expect the opposition to participate, right? Like you said, that would require them, or at least the the opposition engaging in these talks, to coalesce around a candidate. Do you one? Do you think that will happen, right? Like, how, what have they been signaling ahead of? I think they have primaries this year, if I'm not mistaken. The opposition. It's funny if you read the bourgeois media. Yeah, they'll see things like Maduro is scheduling elections for 2024. So Maduro doesn't schedule elections. He's the president. He's the head of the executive. The constitution establishes when elections need to happen. And that is followed through on by the National Electoral uh, Commission, the CNE. And so it's scheduled for 2024. That's when the constitution says it must happen before then. But there's been some talk of it possibly being moved up into 2023. That may or may not happen. I think that really depends on, on a whole lot of other factors of maybe actually reaching an agreement, making sure that there's buy-in. You know, one of the, the key thing that the government is looking for in the negotiations is a commitment that the opposition isn't going to cry fraud the way that they always do when they lose. And so we got to make sure that those conditions are in place. And if they are, and if they're satisfied, and one of the concessions is, look, we'll move the elections. You know, that's the decision. That's the sovereign political decision of the negotiating parties. And I hope that that the, the opposition actually sticks to it. I have my doubts. But what does that mean? So there is going to be a primary process. Actually, this was just announced last week. It's the, the opposition has created and, and we should talk. We should be clear, too. There's oppositions. So the, the major opposition, uh, the one, the, the, the biggest one is uh, they've established the National Primary Commission. 
Uh, and this is by the Unitary platform. That's the game that they're going with now. Uh, and they're expecting to have the primary vote on October 22nd of this year. So, so that would allow them to have their candidate ready and in place and campaigning ahead of a vote if it does indeed happen. Uh, one of the controversies is like, are they going to receive support from the, the CNE because they're the ones who are in charge of actually establishing voting locations? You know, for much as much as much as like Venezuela's election system has been maligned, it's actually quite robust, right? Like they have a very efficient uh, system that, that if the CNE decided to help them, they would have the results relatively quickly and they would be trustworthy in terms of the results. And so who are some of the figures, you know, so there's Guaido, he wants to be the candidate. It's very unlikely he'll win. Um, there's a couple that have actually officially declared. Uh, Carlos Prosperi from Acción Democrática, uh, Carlos Oscariz from Primera Justicia, Maria Corina Machado, who represents sort of the, the far right, Guaido, uh, Guaido himself. And then there's um, Manuel Rosales, who ran last time against, uh, well, actually a, a number of years, elections ago against um, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, uh, and as well, Enrique Capriles. They're all expected to, to join the primary. Uh, but to be clear, like I said, there's oppositions. So... There's also the Democratic Alliance, which is not to be confused with the unitary platform. And they are actually somewhat at odds with this primary process. They say they, they've called it exclusive and sectarian. So it's not clear if, if they're going to participate. All that to say is that it's a bit of a mess. Uh, it's not exactly obvious that there will be a single candidate. Uh, considering the history of the Venezuelan opposition, I would say it's unlikely that they're, they're not going to let their egos get in the way and that they're actually going to present a single candidate. There will probably be other opposition figures who are also running and it will split their vote. So we'll see. Mm. You see, that is kind of what I was thinking, what I was figuring as well. And once again, it follows their track record, right? Like it follows their track. Like there's a reason a lot of them have become so unpopular, right? It's part, part of it is shit like this, right? Uh, but once again, we've talked a lot about the Venezuelan opposition. I think as, and, and we've touched a little bit on um, the U.S.'s role in a lot of this, right? Which is, of course, critical. It's it's the linchpin. They, they are the reason the opposition exists in its current form. Um, what, what is, how would you describe the current state of the U S sanctions regime against Venezuela? Right. You, like you hear, I hear, you know, we see a lot of narratives, right. Especially in the bourgeois presses you describe of like Biden, oh, you know, he's being a little softer and all oh, you see, there's some things going, how would you, how would you describe the current state of, of once again, the sanctions against Venezuela? So not too long ago, the white house point person on Latin America, this guy named Juan Gonzalez, uh, not to be confused with the democracy now host, different guy. <laughs> Uh, he was on a podcast with Brian Winter from America's Quarterly. If people don't know America's Quarterly, it's uh, the magazine of uh, the Council of the Americas, America's Society, which is basically the think tank of the ruling class in the U.S. and its interest in Latin America, right? So if you want to know what the ruling class feels and thinks about Latin America, go there. So we went on the, on the podcast and, and he talked about Venezuela, obviously. And it was really upsetting to listen to because they're trying to put out this narrative and that I consider to be a false narrative, that they've abandoned the Trump strategy. That's a lie. Like, let's call it what it is. It, it, they very much maintain the same exact policies. There's a number of – so the, to be fair – there's a couple of little things that they have changed. So one would be the temporary protection status, the sponsorship of some Venezuelans uh, for immigration. They claim that they've re they've eliminated restrictions on humanitarian aid. We've heard that before. So, you know, and not to forget what happened with that concert that they held on the border where they used the, the, the pretext, the excuse of aid to try to invade the country, right? So, but other than that, 
nothing has really changed, right? The blockade is still in place. The, the sanctions are still in place. There's a lack of recognition of, of Maduro's legitimacy, which is now, you know, undisputed in the region. Uh, yet they maintain uh, Juan Maido isn't even called the interim president anymore by his own allies, but they still, you know, refuse to, to climb down from that position. So, but there is one thing that I think is worth analyzing, which is the sanctions waivers. So uh, I don't know if your listeners know this, but there's this office that's part of the Department of the, of the Treasury. It's called the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is such a hilarious name to me, right? Like, what business does the, for, the U.S. have controlling foreign assets? It's an entire office. It's probably really well-staffed, right, that just controls other assets. And this is something that I talked about in our, in our last podcast uh, that we did for Venezuela Analysis. It's neocolonialism, right? That you have an office of foreign assets control, that's neocolonialism. The imposition of U.S. sanctions is a manifestation of extraterritorial policies mm -hmm. on resources that belong to another sovereign state. Mm -hmm. They are trying to control it for geopolitical reasons. Now, these sanction waivers, what do they actually do? They basically allow a couple of hand-picked firms, right, that already have some presence in the country to continue to now be able to export some oil and have it arrive in the United States. So chiefly Chevron, but there's also any and Repsol in, in Europe that are also receive some, some sanctions waivers. But it's very important to say these are not sanctions relief. Nothing about U.S. policy under Biden towards Venezuela constitutes sanctions relief because these waivers actually prohibit these firms from engaging in cash transactions. So, and Juan Gonzalez on that on that podcast said, oh, no, we should be clear. No money's going to end up in the minds of the Maduro regime, right? Like, oh, maybe down the line in a couple of years, they'll see some benefit from it, right? Like, they're explicit about it. They are nothing about this. It's about respecting the fact that these are Venezuelan resources and that belong to the Venezuelan people and therefore should deserve to enjoy the benefit that comes from their sale in the international market. Well, so anyway, so so the only thing that they can do is that in some kind of negotiation to be able to cancel outstanding debt, which would deliver no real relief to, to the Venezuelan people, or the, eventually the delivery of food and other goods, uh, kind of like the oil for food program back uh, in, you know, mm. in, in Iraq. Uh, not again. That's it's an affront to political sovereignty. It's an affront to the, the the notions of sovereignty, which say that you should be able to decide what happens to your natural resources, and it does create a problem, right? Like, so if you've ever wondered how Venezuela is able to sell the oil despite the blockade, they have to sell through intermediaries and through secondary markets, and that obviously comes at a, at a cost, right? So, uh, in fact, the head of the oil ministry had to suspend the sale of oil for, for a period precisely because they weren't really receiving the money that they needed from these sales. And so they have to renegotiate these kinds of deals, but it puts them in a very disadvantageous position. And the other thing is, is that Venezuela's oil industry was built with serving the U.S. in mind. Right when Venezuela, when oil was discovered in Venezuela, they start all these U.S. firms came in and built all this industry and all this kind of stuff, and obviously gave very little back until Chavez came around. Uh, but that also means that the technology is U.S. based, and when you have sanctions, they can't really find the replacement parts. And it's it's amazing, you know, we were talking at the beginning some of the interviews. Uh, we have one with people from the Productive Workers Army. And what they do is they voluntarily go and they reverse engineer parts and they try to figure out how to get all the industry back online. But 
oil is a very complicated industry. And I think it's worth noting that Iran, which also has a significant oil sector, has been critical in assisting Venezuela in trying to replace some of that technology so that they're using something that is available to them in order to get production back up, which remains pretty stale, right? Like it's still less than a million barrels. And and that's a problem because it's still their key export. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but um, that is leading into a sort of diversification of the Venezuelan economy, which if we could say that there's a silver lining to any of this, it's that, right? Like that there's now different productive elements inside of the Venezuelan economy. Some of them actually owned collectively through, by the communards through their their commune and things like that. And so in that part, it's important. And so hopefully, you know, try to move away from that dependency on petrodollars, right? Actually, Maduro used that term very recently when he was talking about this deal that he signed with Colombia. He's saying that before it was easy, we had so much, so many dollars, we just bought everything on the international market. Well, you know, that has changed. And, and I hope that they learn from this experience so that they're not so dependent on it, because it can be really punishing, as we've seen with the history of the last few years under the U.S. sanctions regime. Oh, my goodness. So much I would love to say to that as well, once again. Okay, so a couple of different things. And I, and there's a lot of uh, a couple of different things I'd love to, to dissect there. Um, I saw recently some of the distinguished Venezuela analysis reporting, right? I saw a report, I, I, I believe it was from Venezuela analysis, talking about the, the OFAC, right, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, as you described, and uh, how it's impeded uh, relations with Trinidad, right? How, like, there's, like, natural gas reserves that are, like, kind of shared between the two countries. And, like, we got to put this into perspective. Trinidad is right off the coast of Venezuela. When Venezuela is in a position, when and it goes both ways, when Trinidad is in a position where it cannot properly access its natural resources or, or even like engage with its closest continental neighbor, like we're talking about a situation that I like to describe is literally against the laws of nature, is literally against the laws of nature, right? When you've got a situation like this, that it, it affects the entire regional economy, right? When you're affecting a, a country like Venezuela and it's, uh, because of its position this deeply, right? So this brings me to another one of its neighbors that you just kind of touched upon there at the end, Colombia, right? Obviously, Colombia has traditionally been such a big part of the isolation campaign against Venezuela, right? However, this has begun to change recently, hasn't it? Since the inauguration of, of Gustavo Petro, even just this week, uh, there was news about a new bilateral agreement. I was wondering if you'd be able to talk a little bit about what, what has been the state of relations after Petro's been inaugurated. How, how has the improvement been? And a little bit about the agreement that was reached this week. I have to be honest. I think at, at first I was pretty suspicious of Petro. He made some really terrible comments about Venezuela, about Maduro on the campaign trail. I'm not going to justify it. I guess I kind of understand it in a sense because of sort of decades of right-wing indoctrination in Colombia, sort of trying to have to use that. Otherwise, they're going to be like, oh, we're going to be the next Venezuela, which is the line that the right uses throughout the continent. Uh, but I've been pleasantly surprised, and, and, and I'm happy to see it. I think that Petro has acted in a very principled way in saying that it's important that we respect Venezuelan political sovereignty. I think that's that's critical. You know, I mentioned at the beginning. I, these are some of the concepts that I work on in my in my master's program, and he's very much trying to unite that concept of the idea that um, you know that we can't just talk about civic and political human rights. We have to talk about you know the economic, social, and cultural rights, and those have to go together. And we have to respect sovereignty, and we have to respect you know you know in the of invoking the best parts of 
international declarations and treaties regarding human rights on the continent, right? You know, because of the instrumentalization of this concept of democracy and human rights, we, you know, people think that it's anytime it comes up, it's only used as a battering ram and it tends to be, but there's actually a fuller experience. And I think he's really trying to stick to that. And I think it's laudable, but I also think that it's good for Colombia. Like you said, right? Like they're neighbors. They have a very long relationship. We have to understand that <laughs> Colombia and Venezuela uh, you know, there's a reason they have the same colors on their flag. Twins. Right? Like, <laughs> they're brother peoples, you know, they're sister peoples. Uh, and they've always had that relationship. And it was, you know, disrupted as a result of Colombia being assigned this role as the U.S. client state in South America under the regimes of neo-fascists like Alvaro Uribe. And, but that's changing. We're seeing it, you know, and and I think it's 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 important to highlight what that means for that bilateral relationship, but it's also going to deliver benefits to the Colombian people. And I'm going to cite one particular case, which is the case of Monomeros. Monomeros is a a petrol firm. It's a subsidiary of Pequiven, which and it makes basically it makes fertilizer, right? So it uses products derived from oil in order to, to, to create fertilizer. So this was one of the foreign assets. It's called the second most important asset after Sitco, uh, belonging to the Venezuelan state and the Venezuelan people. It was handed over to the opposition during that whole show, that circus around Juan Guaido, and they ran it into the ground. They used it as a cash cow. They, used, they stole a bunch of money from it. Even the own opposition was like, we need to set up a commission to figure out what kind of corruption happened here. And so basically it went from being uh, the provider of, I think if this figure was 60% of fertilizer to producers in Colombia to basically nothing, right? And that made it so that fertilizer had to be purchased from elsewhere and that made it more expensive and that made food more expensive and that made life harder for low-income people in Colombia. It raised food prices. It was, it, I mean, the Petro made the decision and I think it was one of the things that spoke to both his principles but also the fact that this is win-win to give it back. And now... Monomeros is getting back on its feet and it's now going to be able to provide that critical role and then it's going to provide income to Venezuela because now they're going to be able to sell some of those resources to the Colombian people. Well, you know, last week we saw this deal, which basically updates a previous deal that had been made in terms of the bilateral trade relationship that the whole point is that, that there's mutual benefit. Because what happens when you don't have that relationship? Well, you have an underground relationship, mm -hmm. right? The border doesn't close just because the official crossing is closed, right? And who moves in? Organized mm -hmm. crime. You know, we're talking paramilitary groups. And that is also a very big risk to the people who have to cross that border, right? Like, we literally have cases of, you know, Venezuelan children who study in Colombian schools and vice versa. And all of that stuff had to pass through this underground network. And that's dangerous and it's bad for people on both sides of the border. So the idea is to create a shared prosperity. But we should be careful because there are also business interests there that want to take advantage of this opening, right? That suddenly there's a lot of business opportunities available in this region. And we have to make sure we don't replicate mistakes of the past and, and create conditions where there's a concentration of wealth and rising inequality, which is a danger. You know, the thing that keeps sticking out to me, honestly, <clears throat> is the word middlemen, right? So it seems that one of the tools of U.S. imperialism towards uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, oil industry in Venezuela is to try to impose as many middlemen as possible. We see this here with the fertilizer company as well. 
but when you added these more these middlemen, they could all skim a little bit as they pass it on. And so the only people that win are those middlemen and, of course, uh, the United States. The Venezuelan people don't win. Um, they, uh, they don't see the kind of return on investment that they're looking for. Uh, and the Colombian people don't win because they're now purchasing price gouge stuff, uh, inflated stuff. But middlemen seems to be is such an important thing. And and it goes to show you, like, kind of tri- uh, circling back to uh, the sanctions regime a little bit here, um, that this is more about the United States and the West stabilizing their own energy costs, right? They're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart, as you mentioned, right? So before the middlemen was fine, before middlemen was a sign that, oh, you know, these countries are working according to the rules of the market, they're following the rules, right? Oh, but now that the West needs their uh, their own uh, energy, uh, state the pricing stabilized a little bit more. Oh, now now we can cut these middlemen. Now we can do this. It goes to show that just kind of the general bad faith that is operating at all levels there. Um, it, again, more evidence too that you know these talks are probably just they're all probably full of shit because they don't they really cannot allow. You know, they have an unreliable partner now in a Colum- in the Colombian government from the United States' eyes. That is an unreliable partner now in their in their plans. So all they really have left is trying to keep up the economic screaming, right? That's what they the only thing they're riding on. If they gosh, I can't imagine if, you know, going into the election that the you know, if the ra- the reactionaries like lose again. Like every though every election cycle, we tend to say this. Like, what do they have now? Surprise, surprise! They get less and less popular. Dude, oh my goodness! A million different things I would say that that I'll try and keep brief. Um, that's exactly one of the reasons I think I like I kind of like we're saying earlier. I exp- I also express skepticism toward any sort of peace agreement. Right? They can't risk losing. Right? They cannot risk losing if they agree to. Okay, yeah, we're going to observe the like, we're going to do all this, right? Like, there's always going to be some level of the opposition that's going to be crying fraud and making sure to muddy up the process. And as the United States is want to do, they will single out those most far right elements and say, "No, these are our guys. These are the freedom fighters. These are the people." When really they represent the fringes of the fringe, right? But it's only because it keeps to serve their argument of saying, "Oh no, this is an illegitimate government, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Oh my goodness. So the last question I wanted to ask, at least regarding to, to Venezuela, before we, if we have some time here, shift gears a little bit, and it's a particularly meaty question, so feel free to tackle it however you want. But we, but T, you did kind of touch upon this, and Jose Luis, you did kind of touch upon this a, a, a bit as well, and that's the economy, right? Like you talk a little bit about economic diversification, or like, how would you describe the state of the Venezuela economy heading into, I guess the year already started, but heading into 2023, right? We, there's been a lot of reports about, okay, the economy's kind of bouncing back a bit, right? You, with the sanctions regime, you, you can never really know. How, how would you describe the state of the uh, Venezuelan economy? Things are definitely better. And it's a credit to the Venezuelan people for being able to essentially survive, you know, this, this special period. Things were really bad, right? Like, there, there was a considerable drop in, in the nutrients that people were able to get. There was a drop in terms of education and healthcare, right? All of the things that the Bolivarian Revolution under Chavez and the early years of Maduro were able to deliver to the people in a lot of ways were impacted, if not lost, right? And that's a tragedy, and we should assign blame where, where it belongs, which is on U.S. imperialism and their allies in the, in the local opposition. But they've been able to survive, you know, it, and, it's, and that's also a credit to the decisions made by the government that, you know, they shifted basically to a type of war time economy and trying to survive and making sure that people didn't starve to death. 
that was basically was part of the situation. That is fortunately in the rearview mirror now. Uh, there are still problems. The, it is the Venezuelan economy is in a straitjacket, right? If you don't, if you can't sell your primary export that you have for, you know, for decades, then it's a really big problem. But there's also been a lot of creativity. I mentioned the, you know, the Productive Workers Army that, that's doing this incredible work to try to restart industry. There's the communards who are working to put the land into good use and produce food for, for the cities and for their communities. Uh, but there's also, you know, um, there's been certain uh, liberalization of some elements. And I think it's worth mentioning. So, uh, I want to be clear that this is because of the situation that the country finds itself in, but there are things that certain that stick to liberal economic orthodoxy, right? Like, you know, trying to make debt payments, keeping the dollar as an unofficial currency circulating and trying to keep inflation down vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar. Uh, you know, things like that, the, the reduction of spending and all sort of some, some austerity measures that, that were forced to be implemented. And we're, we're seeing the effects of that. Uh, we're seeing a working class in Venezuela that is mobilizing, that is organizing, that is demanding that these rising inequality that is the result of some of these policies be addressed, right? And I think the key thing is that when the workers move in Venezuela, they often find a sympathetic ear. So they're able to actually have a sit down and try to work it out and things like that. And there's a lot of competing interests. There are some new kind of accommodations that have been made to owners of capital inside of Venezuela. And now those interests are going to clash with the interests of the working class in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, oftentimes people are told that the state is this arbiter between classes. And that's not true in capitalist societies. I think it is somewhat true in Venezuela. Mm. And so we'll see where this goes. But, you know, I have faith because we've seen, particularly in the history of Venezuela, that when the working class and the campesinos move, they make history, mm. right? They've, they've done it many times before. They've defeated a coup in 2002. They've de- defeated this coup attempt of the interim government. And so that mobilized working class is where I draw a lot of inspiration in terms of like that this will be result- resolved positively, right? in favor of the interests of the working class. And so while things look good, there is that risk of rising inequality. uh, And and that's something that we should be paying attention to, right? The class struggle hasn't ended in Venezuela, but those contradictions do continue to express themselves. And it's important for us as observers to understand those processes, why are they happening and what lessons that we can draw. And I think also importantly, how we can support, right? What is our role as, as observers, as, as allies, as solidarity activists? Well, it's also to weaken imperialism as much as we can so that the Venezuelan workers have the more room to maneuver when starting to express their needs. Mm, my friend, this is why you're brilliant. Once again, let's sprinkle a little bit of optimism at the end there, but also something we talk about so much on the podcast is one of the biggest thing, one of the biggest reasons I champion Venezuela, right, is there's so many lessons to draw, right? There's what, and some of that is what not to do, right? That's important, right? That's part of implementing a socialist vision, right? Putting things into practice. What is working? What is not? How do we move forward, right? And once again, that's just an amazing, once again, that's that's critically important. Oh my goodness, T, I don't know if you had any Venezuela questions before I begin to, to cue us out here. 
here. Okay, wonderful. Oh my goodness, you see, Jose Luis, we're just gonna have to have you on again uh, another day because once again, I would love to talk Mexico with you at some point, but we're kind of running low on time. Oh yeah, here. most definitely. Uh, uh, and even like more Venezuela, I'd love to talk more Venezuela at some point, but we'll 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 have to 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 make that uh, happen. Um. Yeah, and once again, just wanted to uh, plug Venezuela. Now. In fact, I, I should cede the floor to you. Is there any uh, where are you at? How can people find you? Your work, etc. To plug, get, this is your chance to do some plugs. Yeah, so check out our website venezuelanalysis.com. We're also really active on social media. We, you know, Andreina Chavez, she came in to the team at the same time I did. She's done incredible work in really building up our social media presence. Uh, you know, we also do these uh, sort of spicy takes on Twitter that I really like. That's actually not me. That's that's Ricardo. It's sort of like a really poorly kept secret, uh, but it's great, right? Like it kind of helps you get the 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 anger out of it. We really need those interactions because uh, you know I think everybody's noticed that there's kind of been a shift, particularly on Twitter, around like what voices are actually getting amplified. So the more that people can interact and engage with our content, the better. You can find us on on Instagram, on Telegram, and I want to plug the podcast, which I always forget to do, even though I'm the host. <laughs> Check out our podcast. It's it's a labor of love. Uh, you know, we were talking about the lessons. I learned so much from the interviews that I get to do with people. Uh, from Venezuela or analysts of Venezuela. It's really like the most fun part of the job. And we get to talk about, you know, like I said at the beginning, dialectics, it's Marxism come alive and, and in a way that I think is really relevant and very useful for us. So that's where we're at. And you can follow me on Twitter if you want. <laughs> I mostly talk Venezuela and, and Mexico. It's Granado Seja, my two last names. Beautiful. Hell yeah. Following people, following them. Oh my goodness. But I was just going to echo that. I learned so much from the Venezuela Analysis Podcast as well. In fact, the website, everything. You're a wonderful person. Once again, thank you so much for your time, Jose Luis. We will have to have you on uh, again sometime soon. Uh, say goodbye, T. Thank you. Uh, once again, thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure. And uh, take care, y'all. Peace. Mi gente, thank you for listening to this edition of Machete Mate. If you support what we do, consider showing your solidarity at patreon.com slash machete mate. You'll be helping us out by allowing us to put out more and better content while also getting access to our Discord community or more casual and personal after dark episodes and any other projects we might have down the road. If not, we still love you, so show us some love with a good rating review on whatever platform you spend time with us. And as always, hasta la victoria.